Hello and welcome back to Subspace Radio. We are here to talk about Star Trek Picard Season 3, Episode 3, 17 Seconds. I'm Kevin Yank and I am joined, as always, by Rob Lloyd. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. Hope you are doing well out there in the subspace world. We've got a cracker episode of Star Trek Picard to talk about here today. And Rob, I am so happy that I get to talk to you of all people about it because this one was written for you, I feel like. Look, if there was any big bad to be revealed in any TV series, especially, look, okay, if there was any big bad to be revealed in a Star Trek show, I'm glad it was this one because I've just gone... Man, the hard work that I have put in as a fan for decades, justifying my love of the the black sheep of the Star Trek family that people always forget. They always praise the original and next generation. Mm -hmm. They all dismissive of, but in a jovial sense, they like a bit of relish when they put down the Voyager and just bag the hell out of Enterprise. But then this incredible gold show that created all this amazing stuff and nobody's talked about it. And all us fans have been going, but Deep Space Nine. And then all the Star Trek fans roll their eyes at us going, oh, bloody Deep Space Nine fans. <laughs> and it was worth the wait because yeah, was, boom. The changelings t- are back. The changelings are Not back. Not only that, Odo lives in Star Trek canon. He's of course doing he does. new things. Of course he is. He's a man of honor. Of course yeah. Odo's still alive. That is a great tribute to Rene Bourgeois and his legacy for him. To Odo still be there and keeping the Great Link healed and at calm. But we have yes. a a faction group. Of course we have a faction group. Of course we have a faction. There has to be the evil faction. It's a great line. It's a beautiful moment when Worf just turns to me and goes, How long have you been severed from the Great Link? Yes. <sighs> And the ripple the, of the face when um uh, when Jack Crusher punches uh the ensign. Oh that's that was that moment when the face rippled, I leapt out of my seat and I went, oh, there's a changeling in the engine room. Said it out loud in the TV room. And yeah, it was on the one hand, it was a satisfying shock reveal. On the other hand, it was not a complete out of nowhere thing for me because I felt like Terry Metalis has said a lot of things about this season in Ooh. interviews leading up to this. And one of the questions I saw him asked in an interview is, is this going to follow up on the Dominion War? And he, you saw him go, uh, <laughs> there is a Dominion War connection, but I don't want to say too much. So that has been sitting in my subconscious this whole time. And I... You know, I I wish he had lied, to be honest, but... I'm glad I didn't hear any of that, because Mm. um, this is the thing. They had an entire galaxy's defining conflict within this TV show, and due to whatever reasons, that they've always downplayed it. And, And especially with the reboot with the Chris Pine series, and then with Discovery being set in the past, a lot of fans were saying for a long time, when are they going to carry on from the last series, which was in the timeline, which was Voyager and referring to these things that have been talked about. And so now there's that validation for fans who've been going, stop going back and rewriting the past, like literally rewriting the past of Star Trek and look at the mythology and the continuity you have created already that you can draw upon to advance the story. The Dominion War is just 
and especially the changelings as a species is so palpable and so incredible and to not have any reference to that just to go oh let's again with the klingons to quote a simpsons parody or again with the romulan again with time travel let's go with stuff that is created from a, a future history and 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 really bring out that you know literally we've had in many versions of stories in the past trust no one and that was one of the biggest clues of course we can't trust anybody because there are freaking changelings everywhere I am reminded of a, this is earlier in the season. I think it was in the first episode. There was a title card that said present day. Like we were returning from a flashback and yes. the title card said present day. And I remember thinking, that's a weird way to put <laughs> it. If you tell me present day, I think 2023. Yeah. But the era we are now playing in does feel like the present day of the Star Trek universe. It is picking up where we left off on the story at the age that the actors who were telling us that story are now at. And it's allowing us to re-enter that world at the moment that feels continuous with what we last saw. It's not a leap into the future. It's not a flash into the past. We are back in the present of the Star Trek universe. And that is a remarkably powerful feeling is yeah yeah somewhat like like i recall movies like when i was growing up from the 80s and whenever they would like open with a flashback or they'd cut to modern times they wouldn't say the year they would say today or present day it's a weird thing it's that timelessness for me of it despite it clearly being an era of the 80s saying present day takes away a lot of that datedness which for, for me it makes it more timeless and so to have that here in a Picard was a very strong choice. And so it gives us, like you said, that point of this is where we are now. We're up to date. The interrogation scene with Worf and Rafi. First of all, the intercutting between those two stories created amazing momentum in this. That the fact that they were both culminating to effectively the same reveal at the same moment. Masterful textbook story structure. And it worked a treat here. Incredible direction yeah. by Mr. Jonathan Frakes. Yes, how many, how many duties has he had where, because he directed a couple where he's had to direct and act. Yeah, and, um, not that often. And yeah. I have to say on that, I came away from this thinking, I wonder if Frakes' performance as Riker might have been stronger if there had been a stronger outside eye guiding him. I felt like some of the Riker moments in this episode felt a little loose, like there was opportunity to tighten them up and make them hit harder than they did. Ah. And some of it might be that like they were leaving room for the emphasis to be on Picard and the other characters and that Riker's role in this one was a bit more leaning against the bulkhead going, hey, kid, get used to it. You know, <laughs> it was a bit like that. But some of the moments that felt like they were supposed to hit hard for us with Riker, I thought, ooh, that didn't quite get there. And I wish there oh. were someone coaching you on the difference. I was, I was affected by it, especially that moment when he talks to Jake and he goes, I have a wife and a daughter and I have a son. I, I, the, I, uh, to be you honest, felt I, it. I felt it. I teared up. Yeah. I did a lot of, there was some tearing up there. Maybe it's, it was, for me, it was the stuff on the bridge with Picard. Is... Yeah. That for me was a, always a little bit, especially like the stuff they were all blaming Jack and, and the stuff like at the end when he, you've killed us all on there going, eh. well, I mean, it was, I was there thinking. The whole thing of Picard being defined as not being that aggressive, but again, he was that quite aggressive with um, the Borg, obviously, in first contact. So he does have that that joke of going, Picard's the diplomat and Kirk's the warrior is a fallacy, really. It's just used as a gag 
as a one-off thing for to describe Star Trek to outsiders, <laughs> to, to those not in the know. But Picard has that quality. Of course, as you mentioned in previous episodes, as a young man, he was a bit of a firebrand. So it didn't ring that true for me with the two of them, the experience they've had. And I could see that challenge within Riker going, this man who experiences pushing him to attack and Riker, I know they were, they were playing on Picard, pushing the whole, you're doing this because you lost a son and you don't want to lose anywhere else. He was actually, Riker was being, making smart captain yeah. decisions. That's and right. yeah, there was, I didn't feel that as well. That part, I thought that's more of the writing really. It came across mm. as, eh, really? So, okay. but one thing that great focus on the characters, we know some essential time with, with, uh, Crusher, Jean-Luc and, uh, Jack. Yeah. I, I loved that we got long uninterrupted. It felt like hashing it out and they answered every question the fans had, which made it feel deliberate that we had those questions in our head. Like how often has Star Trek A, planted questions in our head and then B, failed to answer them? This one planted them in our head and then answered them, revealing that they intended for those questions to be there. It's so satisfying to have those things like just even the accent covered. Okay. For, for me, that was, I'm there going, you don't need to answer everything, guys. Too cute. Too you cute. don't need to answer everything. Okay. He's got the accent. <laughs> we got it. For me, that was a little bit of the nerdy just going, actually, we need to justify the accent. You okay. don't, we get, that's enough. But the long, sh like I the would have preferred he not have the accent. Oh, really? Given that, given that he did, I am happy they addressed it. <laughs> okay. I was on the different, I was the, he has the accent. That's yeah. enough. Show don't tell. But uh, the beautiful, just the two of them, like two consummate performers. And I think this is some of the best work that Gates oh. McFadden has done in oh. Star Trek. Yeah. Like giving her real stuff to do. And at the same time, it is the most heated argument these two have ever had. On the one hand, they are disagreeing harder than they have ever disagreed before. And at the exact same time, you can you buy the fact that they love each other oh. more than you have ever bought it before. God, that great line, beautiful line. We try we tried five times. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, when just... she's saying stuff, you can see it landing. You can see it affecting Picard in a way that you don't usually see Picard affected. And the reverse is true. Every point that Picard made in the argument, you could see landing on Crusher and you could see her regret. And the fact that even if she, even though she believes she did what she had to do, she hates the impact that it had. And oh. so rich, so many layers. Beautiful moments just to take the time. And that's great direction from Jonathan Frakes. Like, just the two shot of the two of them so distant and Patrick Stewart just leaning up against the bed with his arms closed and just, you just see the two of them responding and those flickers in the eyes or in the cheek or the, the instinctual head tilt when something is said that hits a bit too hard, and especially Picard. I don't think of, especially from the first two seasons, which are just such a mess and didn't really give us like a lot of fans have been saying to me. That's not our Picard and that's not the Picard that we were promised in the final episode to have him just wallowing in self-pity in, in his own vineyard that he ran away from. He purposely ran away from that vineyard. He didn't want to come back and so morose and so dramatic and so dark for no reason and adding in reasons to be dark to just see Patrick Stewart just perform just be this character the most reflective and circumspect and he's not the old picard 
But he is still Picard. Yes. And that that felt more, this is the Picard that I remember from the movies. I'll do you one better. Star Trek, when is doing fan service as Star Trek Picard by definition is somewhat, the way it does it well is when it, when the stuff it is referencing back to is made better by what is being done with it in the present. Exactly. Good new Star Trek makes bad old Star Trek better. <laughs> and in this case, Picard's references to the events of season two, where I know now that I would never have been my father, mm. but I could have learned that 20 years earlier, Yeah, takes what was a painful, tortured plot through season two and mm. suddenly makes it worth something. Yes. Uh, yeah, and yeah, suddenly yeah. I'm less mad at season two, which is an amazing accomplishment. <laughs> for Will you go two. back and watch it again though? Oh, someday. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Yeah, just powerful stuff, beautiful work. And yeah, you can see both sides of the story and you can see both of neither one. There was not, it wasn't an argument for there to be a victory in. It's just a case of, oh yes, all that though. And the next point, which will probably lead, will will lead into our big major topic that we always do because of all this, our beautiful praise for the wonderful, incredible Amanda Plummer, her character as a result was in the background. We hardly Mm. ever saw her this Mm -hmm. episode, Mm -hmm. so we could focus on this essential time needed on the characters who all The ability to create the space for these scenes. Again, like I, I enjoy... Star Trek Discovery. I'm looking forward to its final season. (laughs) I'm a little sad it's ending as early as it is. Nevertheless, I think we would agree that something that has happened again and again in Discovery is that people are having deep and meaningful conversations in a moment of crisis when you're like, you don't have time for this. (laughs) The way that deftly the script writers of this season managed to create space for these long personal scenes in a moment of crisis, but a pause in the storm makes it feel okay for us to revel in these and take full advantage of these moments of connection and not be worried about the thing that they're ignoring. And so much time given to just in the right amount. So even like Seven of Nine getting time with the new LaForge was a beautiful moment just to create a bit of context and Seven of Nine connecting with Jack as well. So there's these little moments carrying on. So it's not just, yeah, there was a great balance. And like you talked about earlier, a great direction to be able to shift both reveals. I was there going, Jack's not going to die because he has to reveal this plot point, but also, yeah, he's a big part of the storyline. But then to have them both say pretty much at the same time, changeling, changeling. Oh, yeah. That young actor being interrogated by Raffi and Worf. Oh, he was giving his all. It was like that perfect balance. For me, I found a perfect balance of genre acting ham and intense fourth wall. I went, you're giving it your all, man, but you're not stepping over the line. You were you're on the you're on the precipice looking over going I could go but oh it was a masterclass in He did in something genre. miraculously to me is that the show tipped its hand for anyone watching closely they tipped their hand that there were changelings in play They showed us the rippling face in the engine room Yes they did And then we had the scene of the interrogation So we already knew So we knew and I was sitting there going, is he a changeling or isn't he? 
I can't tell. And the withdrawals thing, they've pushed that really beautifully. Oh, I said withdrawals. to Jess, I said to Jess at the start of the scene, they think he's an addict, but he's actually a changeling <laughs> who needs to regenerate. And I felt so smart. But this performance made me doubt it. When Rafi dangles the drugs in front of him, he did the exact right amount of maybe he's tempted by it or maybe it's not that. Yeah. And I wavered and I went, oh, I think I'm wrong. I'm kind of disappointed he's not a changeling. I wanted him to be a changeling. And then he was. Jonathan Frakes played you like a fiddle. That actor, that actor did like, that is a, an amazing tightrope act. And maybe they found half of it in editing. I don't know. But he, like, beyond just bringing the acting chops to it, I think walking that fine line of the reveal and making those of us who had already caught on stop and doubt ourselves, that is amazing. That is multiple takes. That is yeah. over a number of hours hitting that intensity again and again and again and again and again another simpsons reference i felt bad for him after a while i was like let the guy get a line like he <laughs> hasn't had a line he has done so much work and he hasn't gotten even to say anything yeah yeah so he finally got a speech at the end which was they're good. the worst interrogators ever they just keep on talking <laughs> would you like some chamomile tea oh let's move on let's do the b plot of this is going to be the a plot focus of us mm. later on the return mm -hmm. Completely, fully, and utterly, Mr. Michael Dorn himself as Worf with the longest title in the history of the universe. <laughs> every single much for it me, was a bit much. Every single one fucking hit. I'm there going, yep, hit that one, hit that one. Yeah, you did slay Galron. Yeah, now pour that chamomile tea. I was all in with every single one. So I was like, he was doing his own slam beat poetry or something, and I was just. His crowd of support at the backup entourage going, oh, 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 every point, yeah. <laughs> You've earned each of those titles. Yes, yes, you have. And and especially topping it all off with the Kevin Malte line. Yeah. Oh, so good. I'm not w sure what to say other than he killed it in this. <laughs> and then just start quoting things that I enjoyed. Look, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing because it's amazing what characters we love who we trust and adore come into a space. And when you see someone who has a lot of experience, but also you have prior knowledge of them and you trust them a lot more, but also how that skill as a performer can lift up other performers around them. And this is a case of Rafi for me has always been this character that they have tried to create this trust in and that we connect with them. And so when Picard says, I trust Rafi, we're meant to automatically without question go, oh, okay, all right. But there's always been this element, she's been played in a rather awkward way, script-wise, direction-wise, acting choices-wise. They've stumbled and started. I haven't fully believed the seven or nine relationship stuff because it just was tacked on at mm. the end of season one. You go, oh, they're holding hands now. And then mm. when we come back for season two, oh, they're having difficulties and they broke up. We go, I, I have had no time with this relationship, literally. So for the first two episodes, because... She's been so isolated. It really created this big drag in some way, shape or form of going all the, I want to go where the fun stuff is. Well, I want to go where Riker and Picard and Dr. Crusher are. Let's go there. Yeah. yeah. But to now put her in the presence of one of our old favorites, immediately her interactions changed and her as a performer worked so beautifully with such, with someone so in tune with their character. And it's, 
Rafi was not as annoying as she has been. And there was a lot of elements there for her to, to, to shine. Again, in that interrogation scene, when they were playing good cop, bad cop. Yeah. Or angry cop, peaceful cop. Uh, <laughs> um, that, that back and forth worked really well. There are other parts where, honestly, I felt a little bad for Rafi, the character, that suddenly she is the guest star in the Worf show, where she was like geeking out that she gets to meet Worf. I was like, <laughs> on the one hand... Fair enough. Fair enough. But on the other hand, this is supposed to be like Rafi is supposed to be one of the main cast members of this show, and mm. and she's the least she's the least important presence on the screen now yeah. in these scenes. It is definitely showing like they have gotten rid of pretty much every single character that was created specifically for Picard. Mm. Um, and it's Rafi's still hanging on there by a thread, but now she's at the point where. Okay, now I'm just I'm I've gone from lead yeah. ensemble member to plucky sidekick. When they're working together, it works. Yes. When they're acting at each other, I feel like it's less less of a compatibility there. Like the final beat where he finally goes, "You work with me now." We are now like, partners. That's right, and she says, "Cool." In, in <laughs> the weirdest way. I like. I was like, "Where did that come from?" It's, that it's, seems not your character. <laughs> it's the drawbacks of the eyeball drugs. So, uh, yeah, yeah it must. Be. It's a common thing. So yeah, any other any other points that stood out for you from this third episode? Seventeen seconds. We didn't talk specifically about Picard and Jack. That awkwardness, like it has yeah. now been established. That is the dangling thing of he he was given the opportunity to reach out and didn't, and Picard is back in denial or back in avoidance mode about it. On the one hand, some stuff has been dealt with. On the other hand, it has raised new questions that have not been dealt with. So that is very satisfying. Like it feels like progress, but also complete resolution is still out of reach, which is nice. I, something I've said earlier in the season is that I appreciated this story was not dangling big mysteries in front of us. It was giving us small personal stakes and dealing with things quickly. I get the sense there is a mystery at hand now. And when Jack was on the floor hallucinating from the fumes in the engine room, and Seven appeared, and there were these red vines behind her. Yeah, very um, very War of the Worlds. There was this voice, and I went back and watched the subtitles to figure out ah. what the voice was saying. And it said, Jack, come to me. Find me. Connect the branches. We'll be together soon. Find me, Jack. And then the shot of a red door opening. That shot was so incredible. That's a beautiful shot. It just came out of nowhere. And this- yeah flicker of light and red it was yeah yeah incredibly well done but this is the first thing that to me this season has felt like here's something and we're not going to tell you what it is and i hope they don't leave that mystery dangling for too long because if that becomes one of these big season-long mysteries and you know it in the very last half hour of the last episode, the red vine creature appears and needs to be destroyed. I'm going to be pretty disappointed. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so, it's, it's the red vine creature we didn't know we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. But on the one hand, like they're not leaning on it too heavily. There is still plenty of good setup payoff each episode here. 
it's still mostly character-based, the drama, so I'm still having a great time. Shaw, of course, was incapacitated and handed over full responsibility back to Riker. We didn't uh, talk about the portal weapon, Rob. And we did not talk about the portal weapon, yes, which they used to destroy the, the recruitment center, And but now they defined it. It's a portal weapon, you, and mm -hmm. it was the old... Uh, yeah, if it was done in a slapstick comedy animation or a Roadrunner sketch, it would be hilarious. But yes, <laughs> trying to escape, nope. Open up the teleport, comes even closer to the trick. And... It's cool. It strikes me as one of those things we're not going to want to overuse. If suddenly portal weapons are everywhere in Star Trek, it's going to wear thin pretty quickly. As a bit of spice for a one-off baddie, I quite like it. Well, are you saying that you're redefining the continuity in a television show? Like, say, an animated one where they're introducing AI ships. They can't do that. What, what, what this means for the history of the... No, it's probably just going to go away. I know you were joking, but <laughs> I actually think I agree with you there, that in the same way that the automated ships in Lower Decks were a good plot device, but I'm glad we moved past them yeah. and left them behind, I want to see the same thing happen with a portal weapon. Yeah, I think we've seen how it works. It's, it's and a it's... bit much if every Klingon baddie is going to be shooting portal weapons at us. Yep. I, and, yeah, and I did the fact that we got to have a, a famous line in Star Trek that is said by multiple people, and Riker said it quite well. Didn't have the same ferocity and insanity of Eric Banner in the 2009 film, but he didn't say, fire everything. Fire so, everything we've got. Fire everything we've got, great. Which, by my count, was four photon torpedoes. That's all they had. That's all they had. And I think there was a stick in there as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, I get obsessed about small details. And one small detail I <laughs> noticed in this portal weapon battle is that the first time the portal weapon occurs, the camera actually goes through the portal with the ship. Yes. We travel through with it. And you see and... like that tremor of going from one place to the other. Yeah. And as we emerge on the other side, we see in the distance, the back of the ship still going through. Yes. And it is awesome that, like is that idea that we're in two places at once we can see our own our own behind it was like an amazing moment but then the second firing of the portal weapon did not do that we see that one from the outside and in that one the ship goes through the portal closes then a new portal opens and the ship emerges that's and right so it is inconsistent the, <laughs> this weapon is my annoying detail that's probably why it's been stolen and that's probably shouldn't be in the hands of all these people because it's unstable uh -huh. but yes so again the it, there was some incredible stuff in there and as a result of that one of the uh, the casualties of this episode was the incredible Amanda Plummer, who we praised so much last episode, was like on the sideline, probably just chomping down on that cigar. She'll get her time, I feel like. I hope so. As long as she doesn't go out like a chump. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. I hope she gets her comeuppance in a satisfying... In a grand way. Shakespearean soliloquy sort Dare of we way. say, much like her father. Mmm, very much like her father, yes. So, so, the biggest new element in this episode that we latched onto is the epic presence of Worf. Damn right. Doing some of his greatest work here, I laughed out loud at the, this is not warrior gear, this is casual. <laughs> and what was it? It was beheadings or on Wednesdays. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And so we decided we would each pick two of our favorite Wharf moments from the past. Greatest hits of Wharf, baby. I know where you'll be leaning into and I know where I'm leaning into. That's right. So I, as I think the groove we've fallen into. Let's I not think... be coy about this, Kevin. Let's not be coy. All right. I... Let's... 
I am looking forward to having my memory refreshed at the amazing <laughs> Wharf moments in Deep Space Nine, and I brought the TNG. And I am looking forward to adding to my list of TNG episodes I need to discover. It was very tempting to go for Worf's best one-liners, <laughs> because there are a lot of those. And Definitely uh, feeling aggressive tendencies, sir. <laughs> the one that jumps out to me always is, Captain, I protest, I am not a merry man. <laughs> Which is from the episode Cupid, where Q puts them all in a Sherwood forest in a Robin Hood recreation. Excellent. Worf is head to toe in Merry Man outfit and smashes Geordi's loot against a tree in rage. Certainly, a lot of the time, what Worf is, is the unwitting comic relief. Yes. I've, I've read a good article this week about the Worf character and how... They were always having to pull back the writers because they were using him as comedy. But the thing about Worf is he never thinks he's funny. No, he takes himself so seriously. And yeah. he's, despite everything, there's a very fragile heart within there. He's got, That's right. he's the body of, he has the body of a warrior, but he has the heart of a poet and an opera yes. singer. And that creates nothing but purely serious character. And the more characters around them lead into the ridiculous and the situations, that is where Worf has to stay steadfast. If he breaks that for even a second, the entire character is lost. Yeah. So I am not going to presume to pick any of these one-liners as his best moments because they're all so good and I wouldn't lose any of them. But the first episode and moment I picked was from The Next Generation Season 4, Episode 26, Redemption Part 1. And this is one of a series of episodes scattered through TNG that are about Worf's culture and relationship with the Klingon Empire. Yeah. Worf has been, was raised by a human family after his family was killed by a Romulan attack on an outpost. And as a result, he has been the outsider looking in to Klingon culture, but also an outsider in Starfleet. Yeah as one of the first Klingons serving in Starfleet. And so these episodes that are largely penned by Ron Moore, amazing the great uh, Ron Moore. writer who went on to do a lot of Deep Space Nine and Battlestar Galactica and plenty more after that. In this particular episode, it is the moment where Worf decides at, at Picard's prompting that it is time to reclaim his family honor. That he accepted the lie that the sons of Moog were traitors because their father betrayed that outpost to the Romulans. He accepted that lie to preserve the High Council, to keep it from being shattered by the traitors in its midst. <laughs> but now is the time when Gowron is seeking to become the new leader of the High Council but is in the minority. He is currently losing. There are more Klingons against him than are for him. Worf sees his opportunity. And in this episode, he goes and visits his brother Kern. They are keeping their brotherhood secret so that Kern can continue to serve in the empire and not have his honor questioned. <laughs> he goes and visits his brother Kern and he says, we are going to support Gowron. And Kern goes, are you crazy? No one's supporting Gowron. We're going to mount that guy's head on a pike. Gowron's bad for the Empire. And Worf goes, yeah, you see, though, he needs our support. <laughs> and if we support Gowron, he will have to give us our family name back. That moment of Worf, like, taking control of the situation and 
exerting like a shrewd political move, being the older brother to his younger brother and telling him, this is the decision I'm making for the family. It is the most proactive and strategic I have ever seen Worf be. Worf is often reduced to being reactive in so many situations or stoically accepting his fate. Yes. And in this episode, he took control so much so that at the end of it, he resigns his commission and walks down the corridor of the Enterprise to an, with an honor guard on either side to the transporter room in order to leave the Enterprise because he is going to look after family business in the Empire. And I really love seeing Worf in that moment of taking control and being strategic. Excellent. Excellent. So it's, yeah, it's quite, it's the definition of melodrama, but it's definitely operatic as well with this, the whole approach to the Klingon empire. And that's what I love about the TV shows in the modern era, modern in inverted commas of the nineties, where we find out more and they explore the Klingon culture. They explore the Ferengi, the Cardassians, all that type of stuff, taking that time over multiple seasons to show the many layers to the culture and especially mm -hmm. the Klingon culture has been defined up until that point as just the black hats to, but to bring this definition of culture and honor and just the family drama of Worf is just so wonderful to play out. It is more than melodramatic. It's operatic. It's yeah, and it's great to see. And they play that out in Deep Space Nine as well. It's some of the stories that make the galaxy in Star Trek feel the biggest as well. In the same way that the Dominion War has this sense of forces moving along political axes. Yeah. And it makes the world feel big. Counter to like what we were saying last week is that sometimes Star Trek can feel surprisingly small. <laughs> <laughs> These stories felt big, and I really get a kick out of the, that epic scale. Definitely. From epic scale, I'm going to go down to low scale. And it is a bit of a, a humorous approach, but again, Worf is always the butt of the jokes, but never the funny guy. It is a season five, episode three of Deep Space Nine, looking for Pa Mark in all the wrong places which is a comedic type episode where Worf's ex-wife comes into the picture, Quark is smitten with her and so he wants to try and prove his love to the ex-wife and Worf is there as sort of like a Cyrano type role at one point transfers his strength into Quark so Quark Worf's got a crush on Quark's ex-wife that's the situation right? yes yes yeah a more unlikely love triangle I have never seen. Like e yes. even when the last time I revisited this episode, I read the description. I was like, well, that can't be right. And then <laughs> I, I went back and looked and sure enough, it sure is enough, right. it, it, it's at 45 Quark's minutes. ex-wife, the Klingon is so beautiful that Worf can't take his eyes off her. Yeah. So yes, but it's also the episode where finally, after a lot of courtship and toing and froing, we get the great, one of the great relationships in Star Trek starting off. Dax and Worf finally get it on and consummate their awesome relationship with Stay Strong for the rest of the season and the rest of season six as well. Incredible stuff. It's it's fun. It's joyous. It's all exploring, you know, it, you know, handwritten poetry that Worf writes, obviously. And yeah, and there's a great payoff at the end. We talked about this one in our a Sex in Star Trek episode as well, as it's a surprisingly sex positive episode of Star Trek, given the history of that in the series. Very much so. It's amazing how they, and it comes play later on, 
where it becomes the running gag of their sex is so violent. They hurt each other, but it's all consensual. And so they both go to the med lab to get fixed up and they're all there. There's nothing other than. It's a small, it's a small space station. I, <laughs> I can't think of anything more awkward. It's- that those promenades are paper thin and you can hear yeah. everything. But yeah, so this is, it's a, a fun episode of helping each other out and wooing people you didn't expect to be attracted to and Dax and Worf at top four. Dax is a perfect compliment to, to Worf and vice versa. And they bring out the best of each other. What do we see of Worf in this episode that like, I understand why this is an important episode for Worf and Dax and that relationship. What is it for Worf? Well, especially the way he was majority of, from what I can see from the outside played through next generation is a lot of the tragedy he's lost. Mm. He lost his, one of his lovers was killed off and died in his arms and he had to seek revenge being excommunicated and also leaving the Federation, that balance of, it's an amazing thing that, and it's Star Trek focuses on the Federation is your family or the Federation is where you find a home. And it's so filled with all these outcasts and all these outsiders. So you've got characters like Odo, the Doctor, War, just a series of characters. Um, Bashir, we find out. We have these peoples who have always lived on the outside of accepted society or ha- are torn between two different cultures and stuff like that. And Worf plays that up. But within, in the, especially in Next Generation, they play up that. But he, it, this is him finding his home, finding his people, finding people he can relate to and embracing who he is as a person and someone who embraces him entirely. It's rare to see things going Worf's way. Exactly. He was in a relationship with Troy in Next Generation for a short time. We might time. be coming back to that in just a moment. <laughs> and despite the tragic ending of this particular relationship for... The entire time it was the dramas they had were very trivial, but it wasn't big, epic, sweeping, tragic type of situations. Obviously the end of it was incredibly tragic because you can't have any nice things in Mm. ongoing genre-based television. But for that two-year time, it was an incredibly positive show and relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, yeah. I'm going to take us back into TNG. And uh, as I as I hinted, talk about the the genesis of another Worf relationship. This is an unusual episode for Worf. It is Next Generation season seven, episode eleven, Parallels. And in this episode, Worf is returning from a Batleth championship that he has won. He's got the trophy as you do, obviously. He's coming back on the shuttle, and when he gets back, the his crew throws him a surprise party because it's his birthday, which he oh, hates, and it's hilarious. But pretty soon, things start changing. Like, the cake at his surprise party is chocolate, and then suddenly it's vanilla. And Picard can't make it to the party, but suddenly he's there. And increasingly less subtle things start changing around Worf. And he realizes he is jumping between parallel realities. Right. And one of the, in one of those parallel realities, he is married to Deanna Troy, which is an amazing scene where uh, he says, I'd rather not discuss this, counselor. And she goes, very well then, lieutenant. And she sits on their bed and gives him a shoulder massage and unbraids his hair. And he's freaking out the whole time. <laughs> it's really good. This plants the seed for 
the future exploration, the very brief exploration of Worf and Troy as a couple. I know a lot of fans, and I believe the actors themselves, feel like that was a forced forced plot element that they didn't really feel like what was earned. How long did but it go for? There was like three episodes, literally. There was this one where it was like the, oh, it happened in another reality, so you never know. Then there was a second episode where they are just getting together, but Troy's having some weird trips that makes her think Worf is cheating on her, and it's a whole thing. And then there's the very start of All Good Things, where at the start of that series finale, they exit the turbo lift together and go, they've been on a date in the holodeck, and they're cute together, but it's not really the point of the episode. They move past it. And then the next thing you see is in the movies, they are broken up. So, yeah, it was very brief. I'm one of those shippers of, of Worf and Troy. I think they're hot together. I think <laughs> they, they are more interesting as a couple than Riker and Troy have ever been. Wow. Uh, so, How's it yeah. compared to uh, Worf and Dax, though? Yeah, no, that, they are the best. Worf <laughs> and Dax are incredible. But the reason I picked this one is not because of all of the parallel universe shenanigans, not even because of the Troy-Worf dynamic, but because this is one of the few times that, at least in The Next Generation, Worf was at the center of a science fiction story. Yes. He was basically the star of Star Trek that week. Yeah. He wasn't the star of Star Trek Klingon politics. He wasn't wrestling with his heritage or his race or his identity. Yeah. He was just being himself and there was some weird sci-fi crap going on that he had to deal with. Yeah. This, it reminds me a lot of the episode Remember Me in which Crusher is trapped in a warp bubble and people on the ship are disappearing and she's the only one that notices that crew members are vanishing and everyone else thinks it's completely ordinary until she's all alone on the ship and she basically has to figure her way out of this science fiction mishap. And it's very similar what happens to Worf here in Parallels. But yeah, I think it is... Tell me if you disagree with this take, but I think there is an extent to which in the 90s when The Next Generation was being made, Worf being a Klingon was an allegory for Michael Dorn being black. Right. And exploring Klingonness in so, at some times, in some ways, exploring his sense of otherness on that ship, on that bridge full of white people, was a way of exploring racial dynamics and exploring blackness in modern society. And this episode, Parallels, I felt was the one time that it, it didn't really matter that Worf was Klingon. Or, to remove the allegory, it didn't really matter that Michael Dorn was black. He was having a science fiction adventure that week. Yeah. And that felt surprisingly rare, at least in Next Gen. Yeah, definitely. Especially it comes into play a lot later on in Star Trek and Deep Space Nine plays into that a little bit where, okay, this is the episode that focuses on the Ferengi. So it deals with Ferengi culture. This mm. is the one that deals with Worf. So Worf's going to be dealing with his trauma with his upbringing, the Klingon yeah. culture. So it's very Everyone's much reduced to a race or a species. As opposed to just going, like we were talking about in an earlier episode, of Odo was incredible, which wasn't his connection to being a changeling. It was about him investigating a murder mystery. So those type of episodes, yeah, it's great to have inclusivity, but you, your cast and your characters aren't defined singly. Mm. When the character outgrows yeah. the archetype. Yes. 
It's yeah, really not, sad. it plays a part into where they come from and all that type of stuff. And you embrace that side of your heritage as much as you want, but always having to go, you're this character, so you have to do this type of scenes defeats the purpose of it. So you want to mm. have, be able, an adventure that anyone could go on and how your character specifically, you as a person deals with it, that doesn't depend on what you believe or what planet you're from or how you identify. Yeah. All right. What's your second one? We spent so much time talking about Gowron. I thought I'd come right to the end of that arc. It's at the end of the Deep Space Nine era, season seven, episode 22, Tacking Into the Wind, which is the culmination of over a decade of storytelling involving characters and actors who've appeared in small parts and then returned and then became a bigger part of the Dominion arc with Worf taking his place within Klingon culture and being this player within the high council and within the high echelons of power within his, his planet, his relationship with Gowron, his relationship with Martok played one of my favorite characters in Star Trek ever. Martok is just a masterclass of performance. If I'm remembering right, Martok was introduced in Way of the Warrior, which is another of my favorite Worf episodes. That was, that was on my list of yeah. ones I would focus on. I feel like the end of the arc you're talking about started in Way of the Warrior. Like yes. Way of the Warrior is the start and this tacking into the wind is when it all is resolved. Yes, even though Gowron was introduced in Next Gen from Way of the Warrior, the start of season four, which is kind of like a soft reboot of the show, really. And a lot of people go, oh, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine wasn't any good until season four. You're missing a lot. But it was that soft reboot to go, mm. if you haven't watched it before, come on back in. If you haven't watched it, Next Gen fans, come on in. Look, here's someone and they'll introduce you to the show from their point of view. But also we're going to start this character on his own journey and a new storyline. Um, and that's where Martok and... Later on, Galron comes in and plays that part. And this is where it's all resolved, where to save the Empire and to save this alliance within the Dominion War, Worf has to, as he described in the most recent episode of the cast, slay Galron, but refuses to take the, the same role and hands that on to Martok to be the ruler of the Klingon Empire. It's a beautiful culmination of what he accepts of his culture, what he accepts of his, that nature and nurture thing, his role within the Federation, his role within the Empire, his role as a Klingon, his role as a man, his role as a father and or an adopted son to Martok. Mm. It's an incredible journey and it's a great culmination of everything. I barely remember this episode. I've got to go. I'm going to go back and watch it tonight now because, because you've reminded me of this blind spot that I have. I assume it ends in some sort of dramatic a sword fighting duel between the two of them. Look, there are battlists, there are all those type of things and the last gasp of breath and all that type of stuff. And then yeah. the weight of the responsibility and all the praise and thrown upon you and then walking away from it and giving it to the man who will handle it better. Talking, and, talking about going back to reunion where I was talking about this like mini series of episodes scattered through TNG that are about Worf's relationship with his world and the politics of that world. It continues through to Tacking in the Wind, where is it's the last time I think we were dealing with Klingon politics on Star Trek. Yeah, very much so, because that, that's episode 22. So the remaining three episodes is like its own arc. And they're, like, they're setting all the pieces in place going, okay, so this is, they put a pin, I think an episode or two earlier on all, a little bit of the Ferengi stuff. They put a pin in the a little, most of the Klingon stuff, and now they've gone right 
So now we can find all these three episodes on the conclusion of this story, Cisco's arc in relation to it all. But yeah, it's a great, powerful end and a really solid, and this is when I, what I loved about Deep Space Nine. It's not the antagonistic Klingons, they're just a people and how they interact and how those people can be accepted in Starfleet culture as well. Just have them working together and hanging out and how they tolerate each other's cultures and stuff like that. It's a great thing. It's like, oh, we're going to drink blood wine and they go, oh, I'm just going to have myself a practicino if that's okay. That string of titles in this week's episode, it is the highlights reel of that arc that we just talked about. Hearing all those titles again all together, it validates our love for that series of six to eight episodes scattered through those two TV series that told the story of Worf. He's just incredible performer, wonderful performer, great great charisma and great focus as as an actor. And despite how much of him we've seen, I feel like there is still so far they could take that character. Oh. There's so much left to be explored. So I'm so happy that the wharf they've given us here in Picard is a new, literally, if you're talking about his hair, a new color. But the focus on pacifism, even as he slices fools apart, is that is a new twist on the character that I'm that really was enjoying. That was a cute addition, especially after like re-mentioning last week going, we've seen battlefield fights and stuff like that, but on TV stuff or going for the PG rated movies. But this we're going, no, that's, that's fully blood coming out right there. That's a head cut off. That is a <laughs> head cut and then slowly fading off, sliding off the neck and then Full. As the humans say, I am working on myself. I am working on myself. Love the white hair too. I do <laughs> love the white hair. It's, it stands out beautifully. I'm going to go watch Tacking Into the Wind. You do that. I'm going to go do a, a show in front of an audience in Adelaide. All right. See you next week, Rob. Bye.